You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. And this week's topic is the circuitous journey taken by Canadian natural gas towards Asian markets, the promise of relief for a beleaguered BC forestry sector, and salmon farming on the brink. Margareta, thank you for joining us this morning. Wonderful to be here. Good morning, my Karen. Now, there's some news out this week that Canadian-produced natural gas is now believed to be the most distantly carried natural gas in the world, coming to Asian markets via the southern United States. Tell us about that. That's right. The first 3,000-mile journey of uh, Canadian, well, more exactly, BC-sourced natural gas, uh, going all the way to Texas on the Gulf Coast, has uh, taken place and is now a regular occurrence. And upon arriving in Texas, our BC natural gas actually gets loaded onto tankers headed to Asia, traversing somewhere between 5,000 to 15,000 nautical miles. That's a very, very long route to take. And yet, buyers want it. They are willing to pay a sizable premium as well, which uh, the producer of this gas, Termaline, is pretty thrilled about because it uh, certainly exceeds the prices they get on domestic markets. And I really have to wonder if the economics of that makes sense. Someone wants to buy it, someone can supply it. What parallel universe do you have to be living in for the economics of export direct from terminals in Canada to not make sense? Of course, that's uh, been an argument that uh, some decision makers uh, federally uh, and provincially have made in the past, uh, especially on the, on the federal side. Uh, but we've been hearing a lot of enthusiasm from Korea and Japan. Uh, in fact, uh, Japan's ambassador to Canada, Yamanuchi Kanji, uh, said recently with a webinar uh, hosted by the Canada West Foundation that, quote, if everything goes well, by the end of 2024, the first shipment of LNG will be sent to Japan. And uh, that's coming from the LNG Canada, which is uh, LNG Canada project, which is just racing towards completion right now. Uh, there's also lots of international news. Uh, China is the world's second largest uh, importer of uh, liquefied natural gas, and they've just uh, closed... Uh, or are about to close a deal with Qatar Energy, uh, a very, very large producer of, of the product, uh, to supply uh, the Middle East's uh, uh, very, very large supply over nearly 30 years to China. Uh, so all of this comes uh, alongside some very, very interesting trends coming out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict that has massively shifted well, disrupted supply, and of course the demand now needs to be met another way. Uh, but of course it's a paradox. It's a paradox. Uh, you know, how can we simultaneously live in a world where LNG is desperately needed? Uh, it's being seen as a transition fuel by many countries. But some decision makers say that the business case just isn't there for Canadian exports. Uh, that is a real mystery, both for me and many experts in the field. Margareta, if you had to guess, what explains some of that tension faced by decision makers? Well, I think it uh, is well explained by major ongoing efforts by groups uh, seeking to advocate, they say on behalf of the environment, to put pressure uh, to not approve more liquefied natural gas. That's not exactly a, a new campaign, but uh, it's really intensified in recent weeks and months. And I think there's a valuable lesson here to be uh, pulled from public choice theory. <clears throat> the idea is that the loudest, most organized voices uh, often really try to make the case that uh, what they're saying must necessarily be the truth, must necessarily be the best course of action relative to a set objective. Uh, and they can be very powerful in influencing decisions, but I, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's alignment between uh, what federal or provincial decision makers uh, aim to actually 
uh, set as an outcome, and uh, what the loudest voices tell them is the best course uh, of action to get there. And essentially, if BC and Canada want to be competitive on a global scale, we want to ensure a high quality of life for our people through a productive economy, strong international trade to boost our relative purchasing power, which is pretty important, and we've always been uh, kind of on the upside of that. Uh, we do need to set conditions for the major industries that would drive that economic success to succeed. And, of course, these are exports, uh, export commodities coming from natural resources. Um, there's, of course, you know, a need to recognize the path of political least resistance. If you know that uh, some groups are going to make a fur, then uh, that's a factor to be considered. But, uh, decisions need to be made in the best interest of Canada and B.C.'s economy and the well-being of our communities. And the case is clear, a substantial majority, in fact, over 60% of British Columbians, according to a recent poll by Mario Canseco, would actually like to see B.C. grow its export of liquefied natural gas. And uh, the industry itself is a very, very uh, strong advocate, of course. Uh, there's been some shifts in how the industry is having its voice represented. The Canadian uh, LNG Alliance, which grew out of the B.C. LNG Alliance, uh, seems to be... Uh, pacing a little bit downwards, um, and uh, some of the members are now headed to support the First Nations LNG Alliance, uh, which has been operational for a number of years. Some people would maybe consider this competition. I would say not necessarily. In essence, this is a sign that economic indigenization is at work, and it's taking place almost certainly uh, leading all other industries in natural resources. LNG is a great example of this. And uh, the FNLNGA has really, really started to uh, push this message that if we're not careful, we're going to miss a major opportunity to supply liquefied natural gas. Uh, in fact, they think that we might have uh, missed a little bit of this opportunity uh, as it relates to Japan. Uh, during a recent visit by Japanese Prime Minister uh, Kushida Fumio, uh, instead of offering assurances that natural gas would be supplied, uh, instead the FN LNG Alliance says that the Canadian Prime Minister was Kind of noncommittal. He spoke about decarbonization and energy diversification. Those are important, but didn't really emphasize the strong value proposition. And in fact, Canada's West Coast, with our existing and planned LNG export infrastructure, is pretty well placed to meet not only Japan's energy needs, uh, such as uh, through the coastal gasoline pipeline and uh, the support of the First Nations LNG Alliance uh, playing a significant role, but through other projects that are currently being considered. Uh, so if we're not careful, not only would we miss out on economic opportunities, but we would also neglect the potential of liquefied natural gas as a transition fuel that can help other countries transition from coal to cleaner energy while lifting populations out of poverty. And other suppliers, like Qatar, could profit while Canada misses out. So it's really imperative for Canadian decision makers to reconsider the cost of lost opportunities in what we know is an uncertain, increasingly unstable, and sometimes dangerous world. And case in point, Sierra LNG project, which is being championed by the Hyslo Nation, needs its permits. So do other projects. So the ball is really in the provincial government's court right now. Meanwhile, the province appears to be taking seriously complaints that it hasn't been handling the forestry file well. What's the latest there? Well, I would hope so. Uh, there was a slate of protests uh, by forestry workers in Merritt last week. Uh, they uh, went to a, a regional office of the provincial government, um, and that follows weeks of mill closures and job losses across the interior and many other parts of British Columbia. And I hope some of the recent news we've heard about uh, reflects that these factors are indeed weighing heavily on senior decision-makers 
Uh, we certainly saw mentions of it in the recent provincial throne speech. Uh, but just yesterday, the premier and the forest minister announced eight steps to rev up the deferral process uh, around old growth that was first revealed in November 2021. And, of course, the old growth deferrals are part of the review of what happens to old growth forests, how are they managed. And as I speculated at the time, the provincial government has really put First Nations in the role of making these decisions, I think is a way to back away from criticism that uh, they're mishandling it, whether it's coming from groups that would like to see them uh, permit no forestry activity whatsoever uh, or industry. I think there has been a tremendous amount of red tape created, um, and one of their solutions that they're just announcing is uh, more capacity and more funding. Uh, in fact, they've said $25 million is going to go towards helping 50 First Nations, the ones that have the greatest uh, uh, backlog of uh, decisions to make on this file to develop eight new management plans under the deferral process. And the idea there is it could you know, increase the rate at which certainty is created for the sector. Uh, they're also doubling an existing $90 million fund uh, related to industry job losses and innovation. Uh, they're doubling that to $180 million. Um, so maybe a little bit of hope there. Uh, overall, they're trying to balance Challenging, challenging considerations here. They want to protect old growth forests and uh, biodiverse areas. They also want to ensure that a critical sector in British Columbia's economy, a historic sector and one that has extensive future opportunities, doesn't uh, effectively shut down. Um, so that's going to be an interesting uh, thing to watch. The BC Council of Forest Industries uh, signaled uh, some support for today's news. Uh, they're saying, you know, it's positive steps towards uh, putting both the necessary investments, frameworks, and relationships in place, uh, and also, I would say, kind of more broadly, creating certainty. But the real challenge here is red tape, and if there's too much of it, more funding doesn't necessarily address the capacity gap that you create, having to force communities, many, many communities, to navigate through all this red tape. Mm -hmm. Now, to round off for this morning's show, tell us what's happening in B.C. salmon farming. Well, there is something troubling, uh, indeed afoot. Uh, huge emissions increases um, are on the horizon. And uh, let me explain why. Uh, Canadian salmon farmers have been facing fairly intense pressures from campaigners who want to shut down aquaculture in Canada, particularly on British Columbia's coast. And um, there's been a series of uh, decisions, principally federal, um, that essentially are threatening to shut down 20,000 tons of annual salmon farming production in British Columbia. And that would result in a very, very sharp drop-off in the salmon that's available to Canadian consumers and for exports to the U.S. market. And uh, in turn, this production, people like salmon, <laughs> would be replaced largely by Chilean and Norwegian salmon farming production. Um, it has to go a lot further to, uh, to get to market. Um, and that has major implications for carbon emissions. In fact, I, I think I heard someone say that uh, it's the equivalent of uh, putting an additional 35,000 cars on the road in a year. Um, so the solution should be straightforward. There's been some uh, notable uh, advocates for responsible development in partnership with First Nations currently in Ottawa advocating for the federal government to see the side of the story. And I think it is possible. We do it in partnership, we maintain sustainability, and we center the global carbon emissions picture. And really the necessary path needs to be collaborative. It needs to leverage the innovation and the leadership that uh, the aquaculture sector in Canada shows. And through that, we can both get the social, economic, and environmental benefits uh, from a healthy, thriving aquaculture industry in Canada and B.C. Margreta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care and have a wonderful weekend. You too.